This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hope everything is well in your world as we have another episode of the Coin World Podcast for your enjoyment today. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. Thanks for being here today. Now, Larry, tell me a little bit about the the guy we spoke to or you spoke to. Well, I had the opportunity to speak to a gentleman who reached out to us, as a matter of fact, through email and made a suggestion of what we might want to talk about. And his suggestion was spot on because it centers around a a very important part of our lives. Uh, Many of us uh, growing up as children in the 60s had this very uh, idea that we wanted to go out into space. And he's talking about uh, space currency. We'll not tip off of what exactly is going to be talked about in there, but uh, if you happen to have had a little bit of uh, treadwear, then you understand uh, the attraction of space. And space is becoming even more of an attraction, uh, hence uh, Richard Branson and his uh, visit to the edge of space just last week, as a matter of fact, not to mention Elon Musk's interest as well as Jeff Bezos trying to get out into space. But there's a lot of interest in space, so we're going to take some of our space and talk about some of the numismatic connections to some of the past events. And of course, you know, history made in 1969, that's going to roll into it, but uh, a lot of it actually predates that as well. So it's going to be quite interesting. We always want to make this interesting too, as we do appreciate everybody being on board, including Amos Advantage. Once again, the place that you can go to for all your supply needs. Check out the book selection that they have there as well. Your magnifying opportunities that you have. And don't forget any of your collecting supplies. It's a one-stop shop for you. They're all right there. So check them out at amosadvantage.com. Absolutely. Uh, you might say that uh, Amos Advantage goes out of this world to deliver good service. Har har. Yep, set up. Anyway, you talked about uh, getting the idea from somebody reaching out to us. This week, we actually had uh, a couple folks reach out to us, and we want to talk about that up, up at the top. One of the joys of being involved in this, at this, in this capacity is having folks come to you and uh, ask questions and, and consider opinions and advice and all that. Because there were people that did that for me in my journey, and there are people that do that for you in your journey. So if we can return the favor, uh, it's always fun. And uh, William Batten of Fargo, North Dakota, wrote me and said, May I ask of your knowledge regarding world coin errors? Who exactly confirms the error slash varieties if it is not currently listed? And are they classified as damaged 
until at least several other examples can be confirmed as having the same error? That's an important question because some folks might sort of, you know, the, the whole process might be mystifying. You know, it's really cut and dried. It's really simple. You know, in short, specialists study the manufacturing methodologies, the whole processes, and they know what those can lead or cannot lead to in some cases. Generally, you know, experts would review the coin in hand, which is preferred. Images uh, are less desirable, but certainly can come into play if there's a, a gap of time or space and, you know, people want to share the image right away and, you know, all that to see if this item is an error indeed or of a variety or has some other explanation. Some things that are not errors that might look like errors are you know, machine doubling, very common. That's not die doubling, which um, you know hasn't really been possible since I think the early 90s or mid 90s at the latest, the 1995 double die, obviously like, like the last known example, I believe. But um, you know, sometimes you'll find a, especially on an, a wheat scent, especially on the wheat scent or a, an Indian head scent, you might find one that looks crimped, for the lack of a better word. Well, what, what it turns out is somebody may have removed that from an encased scent holder. You know, there's coins uh, have been encased as advertising pieces for more than 100 years. And sometimes somebody busts one of those out or it falls out from usage wear or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden it looks like an error, but it's not. You know, so that's where knowing what things look like or what they should look like comes into play. If a grading service is going to acknowledge a variety or an error, and there are differences, you know, varieties I think come with the Die design process errors, you know, is something that struck the wrong way or made the wrong way. So, there, you know, there's a difference there. No, and knowing that is, you know, the, the terms usually lump together and people that like those kind of things or, you know, they generally, if they like one, they like the other. I think that's been my experience. But of course, you know, there are people that go on their own paths and just do one thing. But the idea is, you know, if a grading service was going to acknowledge a new error or variety, my understanding is, one of the ways they do that is if there's a, a major research work published about it. And generally, we're talking about a standalone book, but not always. Uh, there's been some stuff published in digital format that is relied upon. You'll often see in auction catalogs, certainly it's abundant in auction catalogs, less so with the grading services. But if you drill down and, and dig deep to find it, you can find out what they use when they're in a lot listing, for instance, they'll have all these shorthand references to catalogs of works, whether that's the Roman Imperial coinage, RIC, and there's different volumes of that, or whether, you know, whatever the, the standard is, they will acknowledge that in one form or another. And so when there are new standard works that develop, just like the Bowers Borkart book on silver dollars, they'll describe that but with a BB number. And that directly relates to an example as detailed in, in this research, in this in these books. And, you know, if you do your homework, you can find out what books are being used as, as the references, whether that's the Cherry Picker's Guide for the FIVA Stanton number, Bill FIVA and um, JT Stanton, you know, whatever the case may be, every, every series, every 
you know, there's a specialist for everything these days, especially. But, you know, grading services, they're, they're going to want to have something authoritative to rely upon to use. And some of that stuff can creep over into the Red Book. You know, we know that there's stuff that makes it into the Red Book based on market acceptance sometimes, based on importance of, of the error or variety. Obviously, the 1995 double die, that's something that's in there. The 1972 Lincoln sent double die, I think, uh, estimate. Uh, but, but anyway, you know, the, the grading services aren't necessarily, or auction houses for that matter, or publications like CoinWorld. We're not going to go out on a limb and assign something without, you know, some significant thought and effort behind it. I know people will submit us stuff, and certainly it's been in the past. They've sent an image and think it's worth covering. And what do we do right away is, well, you know, have you checked with the, the third-party certification service? Have you checked with the known experts in the field, whether that's dye variety specialist or, you know, somebody like a Fred Weinberg or a Ken Potter or, a, you know, there's any number of experts. Generally, Mike Diamond writes for CoinWorld, so, you know, he's one of them. And then there's some specialists that get it, you know, if you're talking about seated bust stuff, you might ask Brad Karoloff, say, you know, and, and there's some cohorts to them. But you start with the folks who really know and say, look, have you seen this? What do you think? And you're not just, you know, yeah, it's good to have a hunch. It's good to have a basic knowledge, but talk to the folks who live and breathe this every day and, and have done it for years, decades, in many cases, to say, you know, what are your thoughts? What do you think? And generally, when when new stuff is out there and it's exciting, you know, that will tear through the numismatic community. People will, you know, CoinWorld will post a story. People will share it in social media or some of the um, the chat boards, if you will. And, you know, maybe numismatic news will pick it up. The numismatist might pick it up. You know, you'll see the grading services often publish news about new varieties and new things. Although sometimes that's a little more specialized, like I think NGC has published stuff about Chinese varieties, you know, whether that's the panda or whatever, different minting varieties of the of the panda coins at, that they acknowledge that they will honor on a label, you know, on, on a slab label. So, you know, the stuff, once people learn about it and recognize, like for instance, the mule that uh, the coin world just wrote about a couple weeks ago, the idea that this was a 2021 coin, but uh, a small number were made with the wrong die for the obverse that's dated 2018. I saw a reference to that in a, um, a wholesale site this last week. And it was like, you know, we just wrote about that a week before, but already people are aware of it and, you know, are talking about it and its place in the market. So I think that there's generally quick acceptance of that, but it does take a little while it might take 10, 20 years for a specialist to author the work that will get something, the recognition that the folks, you know, somebody who's really tuned into those varieties of that area, they might know about it, but it might not have that wider appeal and, and reach until there's other acceptance. I hope that makes sense and wasn't too long of, a, of an answer. Indeed, sometimes these answers can be a little more complicated than others because it's not just a simple case of this is it. You have to understand a lot of circumstances that go involved in that. And so it's important to know that. And again, the key points of that 
is educating yourself and understanding what's going on. So it's great. We encourage you to uh, write to us and uh, encourage you to communicate with us here. But that was not the only letter we received this week. That would, We also got one that uh, came in on Wednesday, and it was a direct follow-up to our podcast from last week where Alex Harris and Elizabeth Dittman and Mark Obstalecki were uh, part of it. In a nutshell, recapping, Mark proposed to Elizabeth with a Russian coin, and uh, Alyssa Cohn dropped us a line here to point out that her and her husband, Thomas, did very much along the same thing. She was congratulating Alex and Elizabeth on the engagement, enjoyed hearing how it came down. Her and Thomas uh, got engaged to be married with a, uh, a Jewish coin, a Jewish silver coin. Uh, Thomas writes for us in many occasions. You'll see several of his contributions in the latest issue, including the U.S. type note. Also, he does write the coin shop lottery that we have. But uh, he wrote about that actual coin in the guest commentary in the April 9th of 2018 issue. Melissa goes on to say, we've since spent three wonderful years together collecting coins, reading Coin World, writing for Coin World, and sharing the hobby with our two young sons. She neglected to mention the podcast, but obviously she does that. And she wishes <laughs> Alex and Elizabeth a lifetime of love, happiness, and coin collecting. Now, we do appreciate that letter, but what's even more significant is what she didn't say. Because Alyssa herself contributed to Coin World recently in the May issue, page 12 as a matter of fact, with the Back to Basics column. And that is a must-read for a beginning collector. Because Alyssa, coming into the world like she did with her connection to Thomas, had some things. And I especially was taken, and I'm not going to ruin it, but when Thomas called her a 70 and the offense that she took, well... You have to read it and totally understand that. So uh, that's a great column. And again, we thank Alyssa for dropping us the line here. We thank her for listening to the podcast. We thank her and Thomas for the contributions that they continue to make to CoinWorld, CoinWorld.com, and also to our podcast here. And uh, certainly they have some adventures that someday I'd love to get the both of them on here just to talk about some of the things that they're going through and what their journey has taken them through, especially in the last three years. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this speaks to the the appeal of the hobby. There's something in it for everyone. And, and uh, Larry and I saw that at the fun show a couple weeks ago. And if you, anybody uh, came up to us and said hello and had good comments, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. We're gearing up for the ANA in a couple weeks. Don't be shy. Come tell us uh, what you're collecting and how we can serve and uh, do things better and uh, help you out on the journey because we're all walking each other home. We're all, um, you know, we're all in the same boat, so to speak. We all do this because we love it. If you don't love it, if you're not having fun, then you got to do something else because what in the world are you doing? How can you not be having fun doing this? Yeah, and definitely. And uh, if you're not going to make it to the ANA, why not? But if you happen to be coming to the uh, a show in the near future that you're going to be uh, parading the aisles of, uh, tell us about where you're going to be next week. Yeah, and, and actually later this week, I will be at the Missouri Numismatic Society show, certainly on Friday the 23rd. And then Saturday the 24th, I'm taking one of my nephews around, and uh, he has the coin collecting bug, and we're going to feed that interest, uh, hand him a 50 and say, all right kid, what do you, what do you want to find? You know, let's, let's go find you some good deals and to see what they have in store 
for him there. And um, I know he loves World War II history, so we can. There's a lot that we can explore in that realm and uh, and all that. So, but again, you know, if you see see me on uh, Friday for sure, say hi and uh, you know tell us what you found at the show and, and all that. Yeah, definitely. Now, speaking of finding, because you're talking about this, and I, I got to mention real quick here, we talked earlier about the 50 cent pieces being out there, the Kennedy halves, and now we're finding out that the uh, 2021 peas are starting to surface as a collector in Virginia has come across them. So just like we did before, we asked you to start looking for the Washington crossing the Delaware quarter and kind of drop us a line if you encounter one of those. I want to find out if you can encounter a 2021 either P or D Kennedy half dollar in circulation. I just got back from the bank and I asked the lady at the bank, I said, do you happen to have any of those 2021 Kennedy half dollars that are starting to move around in circulation. She looked at me and thought, is this some kind of candid camera thing? She says, honey, half dollars haven't been circulating for 20 years. And I said, okay, I get that. I understand. But I hear that they're back out there again. And she goes, well, we haven't seen any. And until we see them, we don't know anything about them. Okay, that's fine. Now I get to go back there in a month or so and see what they say. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see. And if you come across one, it will be interesting to see where you found it, where you got it. Are they entering the commerce stream? Are they just sitting in the bank somewhere? Uh, how much consternation are they going to cause for the cashiers that don't have a place in the in the coin drawer to put them? I mean, I think you can relate to that a little bit from your Walgreens days. But, uh, you know, just the idea that they're back out there. And we'd love to hear from you if you encounter one. You know, I worked in at Sears Hardware for a year and then Walgreens for seven in high school and college. And um, they were uncommon for sure. But uh, I would definitely try to circulate those and try to circulate dollar coins. And uh, had a blast buying up uh, wheat cents and silver nickels. And uh, I even got two Indian head cents, 1904 and 1899 Indian head cent in circulation. So... Uh, so that was fun, uh, you know, and that was 20 years ago. And I can only imagine how much less good stuff is is in circulation today as compared to then. And I kind of wonder about this uh, 50 cent piece being back in here a little bit because, you know, the 50 cent piece means that's two fewer quarters that have to be uh, circulating here. So maybe that will help with some of our circulation shortage because uh, a 50 cents in change is one coin versus two coins from the uh, two quarters put together here. So maybe there's some uh, method to the madness here. I really don't know that. Well, let's go back to a time when uh, the 50 cent piece was uh, kind of something that we knew about because John Kennedy had been on the coin for a few years now. We're talking the year 1969. And here we are because of our guest today, a very special guest that we have with Rich Jurek, who talks about uh, space and the relationship to the numismatic world, of course, you know, 1969, the year of the lunar landing with Michael Collins and, and Buzz Aldrin and uh, uh, it's, uh, Neil Armstrong. That's it. I was thinking Lance Armstrong, but he did other things. But Neil Armstrong, <laughs> who in fact was a collector as well. But uh, those were all the uh, gentlemen involved on the front of the lunar landing. Of course, many, many people involved in mission control and places like that. But many of us remember where we were when it came time to watch history being made as America put a man on the moon. So 1969 is where we go back to in the month of July. That looks like about the July 16th issue would be a good place to start. 
Yes, I do not know where I was at the time because I uh, had not been born for another 10 years. <laughs> you missed but out. I did. But uh, in any event, you know, you mentioned Neil Armstrong, pride of Wapakoneta, Ohio. If anybody is in that general area, they should go to the uh, museum there. It's fun. Uh, looks like a moon from the outside. They even have uh, first day covers and I think some some metals that are added in the first day covers. They have an elongated scent machine there. So, uh, you know, it's numismatic connection, of course. But, you know, for anybody who was alive during the space race and, and all that, uh, it should have special meaning. I looked at the issue and one of the joys is seeing some of the things advertised uh, back then. And, and, of course, you know, 50 years on, it didn't look classic or vintage when it was published, but boy, t today does it look vintage, right? So that perspective of time. And one of the things I just loved was this advertisement on page six from the Bahamas via the Royal Mint of London, the 1969 Bahamas proof set. And this was distributed by Paramount International, which is Englewood, Ohio, near Dayton. And, um, Boy, is Englewood, this was a big firm in a small town, but they did all sorts of program pieces, if you will. This is basically a, a, a private issue type thing. You know, the Franklin Mint later did a bunch of these coins for the Bahamas, but according to the ad, the 1969 set was from London. And what was curious to me you know, there's four silver coins in this set, uh, three that are crown size or larger. What did it cost back then? It cost $35 plus 50 cents handling charge. I'm not entirely sure, but I imagine that that set is not that much different in today's dollars, with, even with silver at $26 an ounce and change you know, than it was back then. Now, okay, so it has about three ounces of silver. So I stand corrected. I bet at $35 in $1969, you can probably get this set a little more than melt value today. So you might pay $80 today for that. But what was $35 worth in 1969? What could that buy you? That, that could have bought you if you were enterprising and spent the time. You could have pulled out a dollar of silver from circulation. There was still silver in circulation then. The basic math says if you got $35 of silver with that $35 instead of, you know, $35 junk silver, American coinage at 90%, that's selling today for 20 to 22 times face value or 700 to $770 face value. Or if you spent that $35 and 50 cents, I shouldn't neglect that handling charge. You might get $80, $90 today for the proof set because of the silver value in it. So, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's nice to see these things, the perspective of, you know, what was available then and how were things marketed? And, you know, we don't see world mint coinage marketed in today the same way that it was marketed back in the 60s and 70s and, and even to a lesser degree in the 1980s. There were so many coins that were available 
to the market that were being advertised, that were being promoted through Coin World. And now there's just 10 to 100 times the number of coins coming out. But, you know, it's all through uh, the mints are selling them directly. They're, they're using, say, a distributor like uh, Atmex, which, you know, might take a small number of, of each of these things or whatever. But, you know, the, the number of new coins is just stupendous. The cost to buy that full page ad, you know, some of these coins don't have the mintage to support it. I mean, Popjoy Mint just came out with not even a one-ounce silver coin, and the mintage is 175 pieces. And this is being sold around the world, and you can buy this coin for $70. Now, yes, you know, it's it's 28.28 grams of sterling silver, which is 925. So, you know, that's, that's 26 grams or about 85% of an ounce, which you know, at twenty six fifty, it's about $22 an ounce of silver. So yeah, it's, it's being sold at three times silver plus, but it's got 175 mintage. If that was a U.S. coin, oh buddy, look out. You know, the, the price tag would be enormous uh, on it. And so the, the market is just so different today than uh, back then. But uh, that's why we like looking back at the back issues. That's why we do this little walk down memory lane I am curious what was different or what was the same back then based on letters that we received. Well, it's interesting because as we are looking at our July 16, 1969 issue, understand that predates the lunar landing that we were talking about. But this issue also gives us an indication of the general feeling of the population regarding the space race that occurred and how it uh, was affecting all of us and our mindset and the patriotism that goes with it. We had a letter in this issue that says, I am a close follower of the spacecraft missions, and as an American, I feel proud to be a part of this wonderful USA. Following the liftoff of Apollo 10, it gave me a feeling of great American heritage in this great day and age. If each and every American would pause and invest a dollar and a quarter for only one of the spacecraft medals available from spacecraft medals in Cocoa, Florida, the percentage donated to scholarships for other astronauts at West Point and Purdue University would be doubled and greatly appreciated to help our future astronauts of America. With everyone joining in, forgetting about coins and stamps, etc. for now, The present rate and the thinking that we have of our future would help our children and we could help keep America going. And that was from Charles Alexander from Temple Hills, Maryland. So there you see in 1969, space was on a lot of folks' minds. And of course, this predates the successful lunar landing and then the forthcoming shuttle missions that happened and uh, onward and now takes us into the period where we're looking again at the uh, the world of space. And we'll be talking with Rich Jurek coming up in just a few minutes to talk about that as he has uh, become a specialist in that area, especially from the numismatic side. So we're really going to be enjoying that conversation coming along right now. It's one that I had the opportunity uh, to ask the questions, but now I get the opportunity to answer a question. Yes, you do. And then after that, I want to tell you what's happening this week in numismatic history. Oh, okay. We we don't want to forget that. But uh, last week, I asked you about a modern Russian coin because you know we were talking about this classic 
gold Russian coin that um, was used for the um, the engagement. I wanted to know which Russian coin shows the ballerina. In which metal are these series of coins struck? And I think you know the answer to this. Yes, I do. And that's because of my visit to the Summer Fun Show. Because as I was sitting at the booth with my wife, going through world coins, looking for both her father and myself, I had a chance to glance at the display cases of this location and where we were. And I won't give the location's name because I didn't pay for the commercial. So <laughs> uh, they, there was several uh, attempts to sell these particular pieces, and they are made of palladium. You are correct. So, you know, Russia was actually, I uh, believe, the first country to make coins from platinum back in the 18th century, I believe. And I think it was the first country to make coins of palladium. You know, this white metal that, if you didn't know better, was silver. And I think there's even some scientific confusion back in the day that it was silver uh, until the, the elements were isolated. But uh, in any event, the silver ballerina, ballerinas, plural, since they come in different sizes, the palladium ballerinas, ballerinas, plural, because they come in different sizes, uh, are the correct answer. So, you know, now I got to thinking about space, and I wasn't there for the interview with Mr. Jurek, so maybe he addressed this. You'll have to listen. I'm going to have to listen, too, to find out, because I haven't heard it yet. But there were a number of silver dimes recovered from, and it, it was the recovery was July 20th, 1999, on the 30th anniversary of the moon landing. But there was a number of silver dimes recovered from Gus Grissom, that's Virgil Gus Grissom's Liberty Bell 7 Mercury spacecraft. This spacecraft traveled to the edge of space an altitude of 188 miles during a successful suborbital flight before returning to Earth and sinking 16,000 feet to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, the first manned spacecraft to be lost at sea. Grissom, who would later die in a fire on the launch pad, uh, nearly drowned in this uh, situation. How many silver dimes were recovered from that spacecraft in 1999. These items have entered the marketplace and boy, are they not cheap because of that. My gosh. I mean, it's, it's recovered treasure in one sense, not a shipwreck, but it's, it was lost at sea, but also it went in space. So it's been at the highest heights almost and the, the lowest lows of American exploration. And um, what was the face value of the silver that was recovered from that Grissom had with him during that momentous event. And, uh, you know, this is, it's numismatic, sure, but it's not really, you know, I'm not asking you about the VAM tail feathers and all this and that, but it's, it's just fun. And uh, I thought it was, it was most appropriate given the interview subject. Yes, indeed. I, I like the question and, uh, I'm going to have to give it some thought. And, uh, if it's not covered in the interview, I do have Rich Jurek's phone number. So, uh, that'll be happy here. Let's Before we get into the interview, though, let's go back once again and take a look at what was going on in numismatic history, and then we'll start talking space currency. Well, you know, we talked about coins that are in circulation or not seen in circulation and all that, 
And so what happened on July 21st, 1945, really sort of overlaps with that because that was the day that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing released the last $500 and $1,000 Federal Reserve notes into circulation. These circulated until the 60s, but you know, some point, I believe in the 60s, they, you know, the idea was, hey, this allows people to, criminals can store a lot of money quick, easily, and this and that. And so now the highest denomination in circulation is 100. And, uh, you know, for all the talk of a cashless society and everything, we're at a time where, you know, if, if I wanted to, I could change my US dollars into a 500 euro, a 500 Swiss francs, all of these are worth more face value than a $500 U.S. note, which hasn't been in circulation for decades, but which was released for circulation the last time on July 21st, 1945. Given inflation, given the cost of things these days, I'd love to see a $200, $500, something like that note, because yes, it would make having larger sums of money easier, not that I am ever accustomed to holding on to large sums of money. No, definitely not. Well, Mission Control has already initiated the countdown, and we are set to blast off with our interview here today. Richard Jurek is ready to travel with us and take us back in time and the space and numismatic side of things in three, two, one, liftoff. The Coin World Podcast is immensely pleased to have Richard Jurek today on to our, our guest uh, because, uh, you know, Richard's got some great information here to pass along to us. Richard, first of all, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, I really appreciate it, Larry. Thanks for having me. Well, for folks, we're going to get a little background here. Richard reached out to us recently regarding uh, the, an idea that he had, and we always encourage you to do the same as well. And Richard did just exactly that because we're now in the month of July, and July is a very special time for many of us because uh, in, in 1969, in July, we were all highly anticipating the arrival of a lunar mission to actually set foot onto the moon. So we think it's a fitting time to be talking about coins and currency in space. And who better to talk about it than someone who has been a longtime collector who has specialized in space flown materials. And that's why Richard is here today. Richard, tell us how, first of all, as we launch this journey, how did you get started on your coin journey? Yeah, my coin journey, my personal coin journey started with my grandmother many years ago. Uh, she uh, worked at a, a grocery store up in the Chicago area, and uh, she was a store manager, and she'd always have to close out at night. And whenever she would find any interesting coins, whether it was silver dollars that would pop up, any Morgan dollars or any silver dimes, mercury dimes over the Roosevelt dimes or a wheat penny over uh, uh any other one, she would put them aside uh, and uh, bring them home and she would uh, give them to me and, and we would talk about them. And, and she really introduced me to the, the joys of coin collecting. And I think that's a common thing for a lot of people who grew up in the 60s and, and, and came of age in the late 60s and early 70s being introduced by either a parent or a grandparent to this grand hobby of ours. Indeed, because as a child of the 60s as well, one of the things I remember most, and it wasn't necessarily collecting, but it was the idea that I had 
a bank that was shaped like the mercury capsule. And uh, the idea that I was going to, I eventually had to slit the bottom of it to get all those coins out. But uh, obviously, uh, those of us who are going through that era, and then, you know, depending upon the listeners, maybe they experienced the golden age of the uh, of space flight, predating the uh, lunar landing and predating the shuttle programs. And so then how did your interest in space develop in addition to your coin collecting interest? kind of like to call myself, and it sounds like you are too, Larry, a, a child of Apollo. Uh, coming of age in that period, space became a dominant theme for a lot of us. We were not only mesmerized and, and captured by the TV and part of that global communal audience that watched the Apollo 11 uh, lunar landing and, 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 and those first steps on the moon, but also just uh, TV, uh, radio, uh, movies were dominated by space themes. And for me, it started with writing letters to the astronauts uh, and getting their autographs. And so I, I entered the world of, of space collecting through autograph collecting. And one of the first ones uh, I received was a, a signed photo of Neil Armstrong uh, when I wrote to him. And I started to put a collection together like most young people do. And it wasn't until later in life uh, when I had a little bit of expendable money and my various collections had grown that I actually got to meet some of the astronauts and those who walked on the moon and started attending space auctions uh, and auctions dedicated to selling space memorabilia that I found out that there was this plethora of medallions and coins uh, and paper money that flew with on these missions. Uh, and whether flown or unflown, uh, sort of short snorter type autographed dollar bills and silver certificates and other things that it really piqued my interest because it became this, this crossover uh, and this blend of my youthful interest in space uh, numismatics, uh, and then also autographs, because generally they are flight certified and, and particularly the paper currency, flight certified and autographed by the astronaut that flew the bills. That's really how I got into it. And I was amazed at how much the astronauts themselves were collectors, whether they were coin collectors or currency collectors or even, you know, postal stamp cover collectors and things like that. Can you uh, make a determination as to when we actually started to see um, coins or dollar bills uh, make their way into space flight? Yeah, well, uh, they started uh, from apps, the, the first American in space with Alan Shepard. I recently published an article with uh, Aaron Space Magazine uh, on their website about uh, with Alan Shepard's first Mercury suborbital flight back in the early 60s. They had to certify that the astronaut who got into the capsule at the Cape and launched was the exact same person who came out of the capsule who landed in the water in the recovery craft 15 minutes later out on the ocean. And because the official could not get from the Cape to the recovery ship within 15 minutes, they devised a neat little plan of putting a dollar bill aboard the flight in which the official would record the serial number and then it would be radioed back to the Cape from the recovery ship, that serial number. And if it matched, then obviously it was the same astronaut that went in. It was Alan Shepard. And those bills started a unique collection on every U.S. space flight going through to the end of the Apollo program in which dollar bills and their unique serial numbers were used to certify the space flight records of all U.S. crewed space flights. And a complete collection of those 
with the exception of a few bills that are in private hands, I, I have one from Apollo 9 that uh, are in the Smithsonian uh, to this day. So then using the dollar bills, did they ever raise the ante, so to speak, and use a higher <laughs> denomination in some of these flights? Yeah, you know, everything from uh, gold coins and uh, $2 bills, uh, $10 bills, $20 bills uh, have flown. Later on, on things like the International Space Station, uh, 100 U.S. dollar bills have flown and, and, and other things. You know, I've talked to a number of the astronauts, and one of the main reasons that they often were asked to fly currency might have been something that somebody had as a good luck talisman or a, a present they received from somebody, or might have been something they collected themselves, and or it might have been a, a special bill that was meaningful to the astronaut in their own collection. And they would take it because it was light, because it was a symbol of national identity, because it was unique. And they could tuck it away in their little, each astronaut got a fireproof little bag called a PPK or a, a, a pilot's preference kit. That was what they were allowed to take their mementos in. And so a bill or a coin or some sort of unique medallion uh, was very easy for them to take with and still save room in that bag for other things. And so that's how the tradition started. And so you had a number of things. So you had the astronauts taking some in their personal preference kits. You had the official record certifying dollar bills that flew with. But then you also had ground support crew people secreting bills, uh, you know, wrapping them around the wiring within the spacecraft. That was the case in John Glenn's flight, where 36 bills, uh, either a mix of dollar bills and $2 bills, were wrapped around the wiring in his uh, famous orbital flight for the first American to orbit the Earth. And uh, the grounds crew retrieved those at splashdown uh, after the, uh, the craft came back. And uh, John Glenn signed all those bills and flight certified all of them. And uh, those are highly prized because they spawned a congressional investigation on whether or not that could perhaps harm the spacecraft uh, to have... Um, paper money wrapped around the electrical wiring within the uh, spacecraft. And they determined, yes, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, the, that congressional investigation allowed for a complete inventory of those bills by serial number. Those have been published in several books and magazines and uh, are part of the John Glenn archives in Ohio. And so uh, they're highly prized, highly collectible. And Every spaceflight, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, throughout that entire period, have dozens, if not hundreds of individual numismatic items aboard, so much so that even the astronauts on later flights in Gemini and Apollo commissioned unique medallions that were numbered in Apollo and done by the Robbins Medallion Company uh, that are highly prized to this day, some going for, you know, uh, high five figures, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars uh, a piece. And uh, you'll find those coming up at auction uh, rather often. Is there a special place for these to show up in auction or can you find them on some of the general online auctions? Um, there are a number of auction houses that specialize uh, these days in space auctions. It's a, it's a rather growing cottage industry. Your listeners would be very familiar with Heritage down in Texas. And Heritage 
has uh, about twice a year, sometimes three times a year, a dedicated space auction in which they often have certified Robins uh, medallions from Apollo, uh, NGC certified graded with provenance uh, and flight certified uh, medallions, uh, often coming from the astronauts' estates and family collections themselves. And uh, flight line medallions uh, were flown on Gemini, uh, also used uh, or designed by the astronauts themselves. And often these medallions have the mission's uh, mission patch uh, and logo etched into them, and then the dates of flight engraved on the back. The Robbins medallions from Apollo are individually numbered and designated whether they were flown or unflown. And uh, some of those, uh, Apollo 11 flew 440 Robbins medallions. And, and those range in auction prices these days, depending on whether you got it from Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin or Michael Collins, uh, anywhere from 30 to 60,000 a piece. You know, just a few years ago, they could be purchased for a few thousand, uh, but the demand and the interest has grown exponentially with uh, auction houses like Heritage getting involved in that crossover appeal to pneumatists and, and, and other collectors who are interested in collecting medallions and, and items from the great space race. But Sotheby's uh, holds auctions. Uh, there's an auction house in Boston, RR Auction, that has uh, several dedicated space auctions. And then there are space auction houses, Lunar Legacies, uh, the American Space Museum down in Florida hosts uh, charity auctions uh, every couple of years. And so a lot of these medallions, a lot of these coins uh, and, and paper money come up for auction rather regularly. And I would think that uh, some of these places we mentioned before, if you don't necessarily aren't in the market yet to buy something, I would think just about every uh, space museum like uh, would uh, would have something on display along that line because they were so popular to uh, be emblematic of the missions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the Smithsonian, as mentioned, have the uh, record certifying dollar bills, but uh, you will often see these individual medallions on display uh, at certain museums, often uh, uh, gifted to those museums from uh, the astronaut estates or from the astronauts themselves. In the personal preference kits, too, though, you would have everything from gold pieces to peace dollars. Uh, on the Apollo 11 flight, there were several $20 bills taken by the astronauts uh, on behalf of friends and, and ground support crew, a $2.5 Indian head gold piece. A peace dollar that Buzz Aldrin took was sold by Heritage, I want to say, seven or eight years ago. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the hammer price was somewhere around 28000 and then the 440 sterling silver Robbins medallions flew on that flight as well. So each flight had uh, quite a bit of numismatic history going along with it. You mentioned earlier about the International Space Station, and we were thinking in the beginning here that it's the space race between us and the, and the Soviets. But soon other countries got involved with their own little space programs or in cooperation with this country. Do we find that um, numismatic items from other countries have been space flown as well? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly during the Apollo program, uh, during Apollo 15, there was actually a little bit of a, a, a brewing scandal from earlier missions. Uh, started with Franklin Mint medallions that flew on Apollo 14. Alan Shepard, uh, through an arrangement with the Franklin Mint, took 185 
Franklin Mint one ounce silver medallions with the mission logo on them. Uh, And these were all individually numbered as well. And when they returned, they gave 10 of those medallions to the Franklin Mint. And then the crew, the three men who flew to the moon, split it up. The Franklin Mint melted down their medallions and put them into little mini moon coins and used those uh, as a marketing gimmick and sent out a mass mailer that if, if you joined their collector's club, you would receive a little mini moon coin that had flown metal in it. Unfortunately, a few of those flyers landed on uh, some congressional members' desks, and uh, they got rather upset, and it instigated yet another congressional investigation in which it was promised that such shenanigans would never happen again. And of course, uh, it continued on uh, with with silver medallions and coins and, and other things being taken. So after Apollo 15, it was decided that no more currency at the end of the Apollo program would be allowed to be flown by any U.S. astronaut. And that rule stands to this day. So shuttle astronauts uh, and, and, and those American astronauts will be flying on things like uh, the SpaceX Dragon to the International Space Station cannot take currency. But that rule does not apply to Russian or other foreign astronauts who are there on behalf of their own government organizations or are flying on, say, a Russian Soyuz capsule. And so uh, the Russian cosmonauts often take up rubles and other foreign currency and including U.S. currency. And uh, those often find themselves on the uh, collectible market. For those who are collecting these things, provenance is everything, uh, making sure that it's sourced from a legitimate uh, auction house or from the astronaut or cosmonaut directly, that it's flight certified, um, that uh, it appear on a manifest if possible by serial number and several other things. And so uh, there's quite a bit of currency that has flown over the years. The discussion of the uh, the mini moon coin just made me flash back to the time that I went and looked at a moon rock and, you know, how close you could get <laughs> to the uh, the alleged moon rock here. So, you know, one of the things about this is we're talking primarily of the early uh, portions of space activity and, of course, uh, up through the shuttle programs. But now it seems there's been a resurgence in the interest in, once again, space exploration. Do you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a back to the future moment, if you will. What the U.S. discovered during the Great Space Race was that it was very expensive to lift off the planet and to to get into Earth, uh, low Earth orbit, let alone onto the moon and onto the other planets. And the goal of NASA in a post-Apollo world was to create a low-cost, frequent vehicle to get into space. But the technology just wasn't there yet. They tried to do it with the shuttle, but the cost exceeded what they thought they could. They had originally intended to fly the shuttle for over 900 flights, but they only ended up with 135 flights. So they were never able to bring the cost of development down enough by spreading it out over enough flights uh, to make it economically feasible. Now with Other children of Apollo, like uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson, who have created their own vehicles that look like they jumped out of a Chesley Bonstall painting from the 1950s, 
of rockets going up and landing themselves uh, and then being reused and turned around, the cost to launch is dropping dramatically. And that's been the linchpin. Now that the technology and the research has caught up with the desire, uh, I think you'll be seeing a, a huge space industry uh, not only continue to flourish, but develop into areas of space tourism and space industry that uh, will create careers and, and new fields for years and decades to come. And the idea that we were talking about medallions and space-flown material here, it seems like the U.S. coinage finally got into the into the mix when they, uh, they honored the lunar landing back a few years ago. But then there have been other instances of spaceflight showing up on coins. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, spaceflight being depicted on American coins. Yeah, well, it goes back to uh, on the back of the Eisenhower dollar when uh, they put the eagle landing on the moon as a, as a tribute to not only uh, the Apollo missions, but to the peaceful exploration in space and the fact that uh, it was a global effort in a major American global effort. And that, that image that is a, is a favorite on the back of a coin for a lot of people. Uh, and so that's really when it started. I, I would say that uh, there's been a number of commemorative coins that have come out that hint at it, the back of the, uh, in the, the, the quarter series with Ohio. I believe there's a moonwalker on the back of the uh, Ohio quarter, statehood quarter that has space on it. There's an upcoming, if I'm not mistaken, Krista McAuliffe, uh, the teacher in space who unfortunately died with the uh, Challenger uh, explosion of the space shuttle. Uh, and so there are a number of milestones that have been on coinage and probably will continue to, to be on there uh, as we go forward. Yeah, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't bring back the subject that has been mentioned on our podcast quite a few times when I was trying to collect my state quarters and the ever-elusive Florida quarter, which features mm. a space shuttle in the back of it. Absolutely. You're, you're forgiven for that because I caught you off guard with the question here, but you did correctly <laughs> identify the spacewalker on the Ohio quarter from 2002. So also now, as we're talking about the coinage with the upcoming American Women's Quarter program that's going to be happening in 2022, one of the honorees is Sally Ride. So yeah. the idea of Sally Ride on a coin, did you ever think you'd see that day? No, no. And I, uh, you know, if you look at NASA history and you look at uh, what's going on now with uh, with Richard Branson trying to, uh, I believe this coming weekend, trying to beat Jeff Bezos into space, uh, will fly with his uh, Virgin Galactic into space. He's taking Wally Funk, who was one of the Apollo 13, one of the women, uh, I'm sorry, Mercury 13, one of the women uh, back in the 50s who were subjected to uh, the same tests as the uh, Mercury astronauts, but were not uh, allowed into the NASA program. And Wally is going to fly with Richard Branson into space. So when you, when you see homage paid to people like Sally Ride, when you see homage paid to people like uh, Wally Funk and others, it creates more of that sense of diversity and inclusion and the large tent atmosphere that we should have had with the space program earlier, but didn't because of the restrictions at the time of just having military test pilots fly into space. But space is opening up to everyone. And it's just fantastic to see people like Sally, like Krista McAuliffe, like Wally and others uh, celebrated for their role in history. 
And the idea that those, as we were growing up back in the days of the early beginnings of Mercury and, and Apollo and Gemini and that type of thing, and now the world is a totally different place. I mean, the world has expanded because of lunar landing and the International Space Station, Hubble Telescope and all that kind of activity. We see space more or less in science fiction as much as we see it more in science fact. What's it going to take to make uh, today's youth understand the importance of exploration in space? It's an interesting question. I mean, during the Apollo era, it was a global imperative. It was it was the threat of uh, the geopolitical threat from uh, the Soviets and the Americans and, and leading into the Cold War and, and the fear of military dominance that drove us into space. Uh, did, we didn't want to cede the high ground, if you will, to satellites and technology of what we viewed as the evil empire at the time. And so that gave way after we landed on the moon, there was sort of a, um, a drop off in interest. Uh, you know, Bill Anders from Apollo 8 famously once said that we went into space to uh, explore the moon, but what we discovered was the earth. You know, we started to look inward. And uh, when we found that there really wasn't much of any value, we didn't find gold or silver. We didn't find oil on the moon. Uh, all we fought, found was a bunch of rocks. It turned into a geology story instead of an exploration story. And, and those are tough stories to sell. But what I think NASA has done over the years, they've, they've engaged more and more of a younger generation, uh, have reached out to the schools. I think private space brings an even more exciting element to it, more of a marketing discipline. For example, with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, uh, he has uh, a thing called the Club of the Future, where children uh, draw the future of space exploration. And, and on test flights uh, of their rockets, these drawings and cards from children from around the world get flown into space and then are sent back to them as a memento and an encouragement uh, to keep them interested in the sciences and into space. Uh, and in fact, I got a $2 bill flown through the Club of the Future by sending it in uh, as well. And uh, it's just fascinating the encouragement that these organizations have for future generations to go into space. So I think we need that sense of, uh, of a global imperative. We need people to focus on what we get out of the program, not just it's not just going into space to go into space, but rather it is for the advancements that we have here on Earth in terms of technology, uh, in science and in industry. Uh, one could argue that the entire internet, our entire communications and digital explosion of this generation was born out of the fundamental research and communications investments made during the Apollo program, and that the children of Apollo, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, purveyors of our digital future, actually got their inspiration from the space program, and uh, we are benefiting from those investments even all these decades into the future. And we're definitely benefiting from the fact that you sent that email and you've spent the time with us here today and you've opened up our eyes to the vast variety and the array of um, items that are out there for us as if we want to follow along and take that giant step for mankind and, and become collectors like yourself. What advice would you give to someone who would like to become involved in collecting uh, numismatic material related to space flown items and the like? Well, one would be to do their research, right? To go to 
websites uh, of auction houses like Heritage, like RR Auction, and to look at past auctions of dedicated space material. If they're interested in either in the numismatic aspect of it, look at prices, look at types. There's some items that are less expensive that have blended in flown metal and it didn't actually fly on the mission, but was part of a melted down series that are a little bit less expensive. You have uh, other um, um, tribute coinage that has been created by other nations around the world. They often appear in those auctions. So number one, do your research. Number two, uh, expand your knowledge. There are specific websites. Uh, there's a very popular one called collectspace.com where collectors of space memorabilia uh, from all around the world gather and discuss and share knowledge. Uh, and uh, CollectSpace is a, is a wonderful place for people to learn more. If you're interested specifically in the history of flown Robbins medallions during Apollo, the number of uh, medallions that were minted and flown and the back history of all of those, uh, there's a wonderful website called uh, spaceflownartifacts.com that they can go to. Uh, and then I, I happen to have my own website called the Jefferson Space Museum. I, I noticed a trend of $2 bills flying consistently during Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And so I have the world's largest collection uh, spanning uh, all of those programs. And, and uh, I write up about each of those missions and background on it, and people can go to that website and find out more. But uh, don't try to be all things to all people. Like in normal coin collecting, find a niche. Find something, uh, a subgenre that you like, that that appeals to you. It's, it's part of the thrill of the hunt is the research and the backstory of the item uh, and, and really go to it. There are hundreds, if not thousands of space flow numismatic items, and there's something out there for everybody. Well, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed today's presentation. Our thanks once again to Richard Jurek for coming forth and telling us all about this. And I'll tell you one thing, you brought back the child in me right now because I'm really <laughs> thinking about those days again. I wish I still had that Mercury Capsule Bank, but I don't, unfortunately. Richard, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Larry. Really appreciate it. Wow. That, that is something. I mean, that was really quite the... Uh, I, I learned a lot about that, and, and there are many things on that one I, I'm sure that I can... Uh, share with my friends who didn't happen to catch this. We're glad that you were able to catch it. And since you didn't have the opportunity to be with us, number one, you were sorely missed. And number two, wasn't that incredible? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to listen again just to soak up all the fun stuff. And I love the Robbins medallions. I love this idea of stuff that astronauts carried with them. And it's an area that really reaches outside numismatics and, and pulls people in with other interest and appreciation. And it's great that we had a chance to, to learn about that, talk about that. Indeed. We thank Richard for reaching out to us. First off, want to thank Amos Advantage for being on board with us once again and helping us out here today. We thank all your listeners, uh, all the listeners who help us out. Appreciate those letters. Keep those letters coming. We're more than happy to entertain the ideas of future podcasts that we can be informative and uh, educate folks just like we did here today, thanks to the email that we received from Richard Jurek. So we've got another great one planned for you. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of activity going on in the world of numismatics. So until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week.
Would you like to sponsor the Coin World podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b h e r t e l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World podcast.